0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we pray as we sit here and we open your word and we, as much as possible, open our hearts to hear it. We pray, Lord, that you'd make our hearts good soil, Lord, that our hearts would not be stony, our hearts would not be dry. But our hearts would be good soil, Lord. That's something your spirit does in making our hearts good soil for the gospel. And as we pray, as that seed goes out, Lord, that if the devil wouldn't pluck that seed away, but that it would get good growth in our hearts and that it would spring up into all kinds of love and good deeds that spring from faith. And we, uh, we pray, Lord, that, that your word would be um, clear, compelling, Lord, that you would stir up our hearts to enjoy your word, to be excited about the things you have. We pray, Lord, that here in this room today, you would both save and set free people who need your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we're in Galatians 3, and uh, the year here that he's writing this is about 48 A.D., and, um, and Paul's writing a small group of churches. They're small churches like our church is a small church. Um, but there were churches that were started directly by Paul himself. And he planted these churches in areas where they had never heard the gospel before. He brings this amazing message to them, this amazing message that though they are sinners and condemned by God, that God himself has become a man, come down on earth, lived a perfect life, died in their place, and all they have to do is hear that message and believe it. And they'll be forgiven and welcomed into God's family. And many of those people believed it, which is amazing, really. You've got this, you know, ex-Pharisee Jewish guy going out to the, you know, nether reaches of the Roman Empire, preaching to the pagans about a Jewish Messiah. And they believe, you know, it's the power of the Spirit. And little churches were formed. But there's a problem. Shortly after Paul left and planted those churches, he went on to go plant some others and some imposters crept in. There were some false teachers, and they came in, and they were saying things like, well, you know, if you're going to be saved by a Jewish Messiah, Jesus, a Jewish Messiah, you're going to have to become a whole lot more Jewish first, which means you're going to have to keep what he calls in here um, the works of the law. You're going to have to, the men will need to be circumcised. You'll need to keep kosher. You'll need to keep the holy religious days. You'll have to take on the whole Jewish lifestyle from the Mosaic Covenant if you're going to be saved through a Jewish Messiah. And you can imagine after these false teachers left, I mean, these guys are new believers. This is a new church. And these guys are saying that they're from Jerusalem and from the other apostles. You can imagine them going like, well, maybe they're right, you know. Maybe we aren't really in yet. Maybe we aren't, I mean, we're just these people off in the middle of nowhere. Like, what makes us think that we would be in with the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament? And uh, so maybe maybe they're right. Maybe we aren't God's people yet. Maybe we need to do these works of the law and add something else to Christ. And so Paul hears about this, and he He gets very shocked and upset and afraid for them, and he writes them. He writes them, and he's pretty tough on them. Look at verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Galatians says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Okay? It's intense, right? It's as if Paul's saying, I'm not really sure if you're doing this because you're stupid or because you're under a spell. Like, are you foolish or are you bewitched? You know, this word foolish is a translation I started reading recently, and it's witless. You witless Galatians, you know, and it kind of has a sharper feel. Well, foolish has a sharp feel, but we've read it too much. So you hear witless, and you're like, that's kind of mean. Paul is really startled by what's going on here. He's saying, you know, you guys should know better. Look at verse 1. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And then he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He goes, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed crucified. You should know that's enough. You shouldn't be looking for other things. Now, Paul does not mean that these people physically saw the the crucifixion. You might think that, right? But these are are Galatians. These guys are several hundred miles away from Jerusalem. This is written 20 years later. These are non-Jews. They weren't there. So what does Paul mean when he says, it was before your eyes? He says, before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed crucified. What he means here is not that they saw it, but he's talking about preaching, guys. He's talking about the preaching of the gospel, that the preaching of the gospel, Paul's preaching, and anyone who preaches the gospel, it's a public portrayal of Christ crucified. Isn't that awesome? Does that make you more excited about it? It's a, that's what it means to preach the gospel. It means to publicly portray Christ as crucified. And because of this, they should have known better. So he's like, are you guys foolish? What's going on? Or is it something worse? You know, he says, he says who has bewitched you? Maybe it's something worse. The New Living Translation says, who has cast an evil spell upon you? Which is actually quite accurate. The Greek word here means to exert evil influence through an eye. Okay? So it's like a sorcerer using their eye to cast a spell on people. He's like, Who has bewitched you? Now, he doesn't have in mind probably a sorcerer that came to town or something. He's thinking of the demonic influence that causes the gospel to become unclear. Okay? The darkening of the mind. It's like a casting of a sorcerer's spell. It creates confusion and blindness, and that's something Satan does. Satan blinds minds. He confuses people about the gospel. That's why the gospel is kind of hard to hold on to. Have you found it hard to hold on to? i found it hard to hold on to. You know, you're told it's Jesus alone. You're like, okay, that's simple. got that. And then a little bit later, you're operating as if it's not. What is that? There's a spiritual thing happening there. That's not because you're stupid or witless, okay? That's because there are spiritual forces trying to blind your mind to it. He's casting a spell, He casts a spell that makes them feel insecure about God's love. You know, it's a spell that, you know, where you were looking at Christ and now you start to kind of turn your eyes inward, a weird visual, turn your eyes inward and look at your own sin and look at it and see, do I measure up? Am I doing this right? Can I call myself a Christian based on what's an excessive focus on your insides? We should do some introspection, but it shouldn't be the main thing. And what this causes us to do is start to look at ourselves instead of looking at Christ. And as we see all that sin, we start to think, you know, how could God love a person like me? You guys, anybody? Right? I mean, this is the thing, right? That's the spell. That's the spell. It's a spell of self-sufficient religion being cast over our minds. And it's demonic. And Paul's shocked and saddened and scared. And look at verse 4. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? He's like, why did you suffer so many things for Christ to abandon him now? You know, like you went through so many hard things to follow Christ. You know, come back. You know, these Galatians, guys, they're confused. They're confused between two things you'll see in this passage. You'll see works of the law and hearing with faith. And they're confused. They're confused about how do we know that we're right before God? How do we make progress in the Christian life? Is it works of the law or hearing with faith? Hearing with faith would be seeing Christ crucified and banking your whole life on it. You know, not saying, okay, yeah, Christ paid the debt, but if I live enough of a good life and add that to the scale, then I'll be worthy enough. No, it's Christ alone. That's what it means, hearing with faith, hearing the gospel and believing it. Or is it works of the law? Works of the law in this context would be banking on your own ability to keep God's law. Okay, you either bank on Christ or you bank on your own ability to earn your way. It's the difference between trusting in what he did or trusted in what, trusting in what we do. That's the difference. It's, it's seeing Christ and all he's done and trusting in him for it. That's what we mean by hearing with faith. It's the difference between something that you're doing and something that's done. It's a difference between earning something and hearing something. You realize that the Christian gospel, you are accepted in Christ because you heard something and believed it, not because you did something. That's completely different. You can imagine the Galatians, especially after these, you know, legalistic people came and they're saying works the law and all this stuff. You can imagine them thinking like, maybe it was a little silly to think that if we just heard a message and believed it, we'd be right with God. Like, nothing's that free. And something like this certainly isn't going to be that free, right? And so Paul comes to him and he says, guys, you need to focus on this. He goes, look at what you've already received for free by hearing with faith. And he points out two things here. He points out that they've received the Holy Spirit in them. And they've received the Holy Spirit working among them as a body. Okay, let me read it to you. It's um, verse 2. He asked them two questions. Let, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, that's the first one we're going to look at. How did you receive the Spirit? Did you work really hard and got the Spirit? Or did you get the Spirit after believing the gospel with faith? And the second question is a little further down. He goes, does he who... Uh, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do it by works of the law or hearing with faith? So those are the two questions we're going to look at. First one is, how did you guys get the Holy Spirit? Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Um, You all, all of you believers, all of you who are trusting in Christ, have become inhabited by God. And we have a very pantheistic way of thinking these days where, like, oh, God's in everywhere and in everything, and it doesn't really mean much to say God dwells in you. It means a ton. Okay? He dwells in you in a way that he used to dwell in the tabernacle and in the temple. It's God's very presence living in your body, your body. And you're like, it's just a regular body. It's a regular body inhabited by the God that made the universe, okay? You, normal you, have God living in you, the God, okay? This is amazing, and these guys, these Galatians were almost all Gentiles, and those imposter teachers that come in and said, you know, if you really want to be accepted and loved by God, you need to do these things, the works of the law, circumcision, uh, the kosher laws, holy days, you need to do all this, and then God will really accept you and love you, okay? Um, The weird thing is, is here you have a group of Gentiles, and the Hebrew God is already living inside of them, and so he says, how did that happen? (laughs) You know, you're a bunch of Gentiles, and these guys are saying, oh, to get really accepted, you need to do these things." And he's guys, look, guys, you already have God living in you. Somebody's got some explaining to do, right? Somebody's got to explain how these Gentile people that have never kept any of these laws have God living in them. And he's like, what more are you looking for? You know what I mean? What more are you looking for to feel secure that God loves you and that you're accepted? He moved into your body, for goodness sakes. What more are you looking for? And how is keeping the law of Moses going to give you more than that? Like what more am I gonna get from keeping all these things? I got God living me. He's pointing that out to him. He's guys, guys, you are already accepted. Don't be so insecure. God's dwelling in you. He's already made the biggest statement he could possibly make about your acceptance. And it happened just when they're believing the gospel. Paul's asking him. Let me get this straight. Did you keep all those 600 and something laws and then the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you? And they're like, no, we, you told us the gospel. And then all of a sudden, boom, we started to feel there was a life in us that wasn't us dwelling in us. And you told us that was God. And, um, and we've been growing ever since. And he's like, there, stick with that. You know? And then he goes on to say that those works of the law, they, they not only can't save you, but they also can't help you grow in holiness either. Look at verse three. He says, are you so foolish? Again, have you begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, Paul's changing what he's talking about here. And just track with me for a moment. There's big words, and you're capable of big words, and most of you already know them. But he's changed from talking about justification to talking about sanctification. Okay, so you know the difference? The difference is this. Justification is a one-time event. When you first come to trust in Christ, what happens is justification is a legal declaration that God makes. It says, you are righteous before him, as righteous as Jesus You get credited with all of Jesus' righteousness. That's justification. One time event happened when you first came to Christ. If you believe in it today, it can happen to you today. Justification. Then there's sanctification. Now, sanctification is a process, it's a gradual process, it's a slow process. It's a painful process, okay? Amen. Yeah, it's a painful process, but it's the process by which God makes you more and more like Jesus in everyday life, okay? That doesn't make you any more right with God, but it does make your neighbor a lot happier, right? (laughs) You know, it makes the people around you happier. But as you become more and more like Christ, that's sanctification. So he switched here to sanctification. Now listen to it at thinking about sanctification. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected or made more like Christ by the flesh? The term flesh here means anything that a human being can do in their own power. By flesh here, it does. flesh is used different ways in the New Testament. One way is kind of the principle of evil. Here he's just talking about your body your normal human faculties, perfecting yourself in the flesh would be using your everyday normal abilities. It'd be using every ability you have within yourself to do what God's commanded you to do and become the person he's made you to be. Okay, that's what it would mean to be perfected by the flesh. It's the stuff of inspirational memes, right? Inspirational memes like you have the power within yourself to be everything you were made to be. Okay, that's not true okay you don't you know when he says flesh like you're a hunk of dead meat as far as trying to be anything like Christ we don't have it within ourselves to do it right it's it's that thing right like oh girl you have it all in you just live out what's in your heart and you'll be that person you were meant to be no no okay he's saying are you so foolish you began by the spirit now you're going to be perfected by the words of the by the the power of the flesh how does it happen? It happens the same way that you came to Christ. You came to Christ by hearing with faith, and it, and it turns out that the way you get transformed over time is by hearing with faith. You're justified by faith, and you're sanctified by faith. Guys, hearing and believing the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. Okay, I was in a church environment where you know, you'd have a, a sermon, and then at the end, there was the gospel at the end. That's when you need to pack up your Bibles, because that's for the unbelievers. That's not for you. That's just the stuff you tack on at the end. Make sure, in case there's anybody that don't know Jesus, The gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life, guys. It's the A to Z. The the very thing that the Holy Spirit used to bring you to Christ is the same uh, power that he uses to transform you. It's hearing with faith. The Holy Spirit perfects us from the inside out as we meditate on the gospel. Now, if you've been here for more than a couple of weeks, you've heard me say that. Um, But I have a diagram. And I know, okay, so the art won't be good. Okay, it's not going to be good art, but, um, and, you know, some of the guys said, well, why don't you just, like, take a picture of what you have in your moleskin where you had a little more time to work on it, and then we'll put it on the screen, but it's not as dynamic. You guys that are teachers know that. Like, people want to see the thing happen. Okay, so here's the thing. We're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit perfects us by hearing with faith, and I want to do it with a tree, and I, I always sound like that guy again, Bob Ross. Um So this is going to be the tree, and I know all you guys can do better. That's not what this is about. Okay, and then we'll go up here, and we'll have some little branches. I'm going to put a little flower. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Okay, so it's a tree. Believable? Yeah? Okay, tree's got some fruit, right? Okay, so this is a little diagram on Christian growth. So um, the first thing I want to show you is the soil uh, beneath here that the roots are in. This is the gospel word, okay? This is the gospel word, okay? The gospel word is that soil. Now, this top part right here, the roots, this would be the mind, okay? And then this part right here, this is the affections, okay? And then these branches right here are the will. This is gonna be great for a podcast. This is the will, and then these are the acts of love. Should it come this Sunday? Um, Okay, so this is what the, the, this is a, a, to show the, the pattern that happens. And so here's how it works. So here's how it works. The Holy Spirit uh, transforms us as our mind is soaking in the gospel word, okay? As we meditate on the gospel, and we meditate on all the wonderful aspects of the gospel, and the gospel isn't just a simple thing, right? There's so many layers. It's simple enough to make one sentence, but it's deep enough to where we could spend the rest of our lives, even eternity, thinking about all the the, the parts and all the nuances of the gospel. So uh, the mind soaks on the gospel word, meditates on it, and then the affections become stirred with joy. You guys have all felt this. As, as the gospels made clear to your mind as you're turning it over, you feel, don't you? You feel the joy build up in your affections as your affections are stirred up for him. And then those affections, as they're stirred up with joy, come up. And they free your will to want to do the things Christ has commanded right? To actually want to do them. Some of you guys have you really experienced this, that there's been commands that before you thought, oh man, I wish he never commanded that. You know, every time I get to that part of the Bible, I wish I would have skipped that book or, you know, I wish I knew better, you know, I ran into it again. You got convicted again, right? Well, um, what, uh, the, what the Holy Spirit does is he stirs us with joy as he frees our will to actually want to do the things Christ has commanded and then acts of love issue forth. That's the, the trees and the, um, uh, sorry, the, the leaves and the fruit. Um, he actually makes us so that his commandments are no longer burdensome. And so it's a natural, this is what the Holy Spirit does through the Word. Now, there's some ways that we can try to perfect ourselves in the flesh. And I just want to give those to you while we're doing this. And one of them would be externalism. Externalism is when we put all the pressure on the will. You know, we bypass really meditating on the gospel. We bypass the work of actually meditating in our minds, having our affections stirred. And we go straight to the will. The will is bypassing you know, affections and mind and gospel. It's basically the idea of, I'm just going to try really hard. You guys have all done that. You guys have all been like, you know, I really need to stop doing this. What i am going to do? I'm going to write down a few verses that say the law and what I should do. And I'm just going to try really, really hard to prove myself. I was in a, a church environment for many years that, that really pushed people this direction. And um, I don't think it was something they meant to do. But the sermons were always biblical. It was expositional preaching. It was line by line. But every sermon was basically a list of moral principles. And then by the end, you feel convicted. And at the end, they would say, basically, and if you're not doing this, you're probably not saved. And it's like, what does that leave me? (laughs) That doesn't leave me any way to actually change. Um, What it really does is it says, you know what? I better really try hard to actually kind of convince myself I'm a Christian here. It's to put pressure on the will. And when a, when a church is, is theologically weak, that's all we can do. All we have to look at in a theologically weak church is ourselves and how we're doing. <laughs> With a richness of the gospel, we have tons of other things to look at. Things that will actually inflame our hearts, guys, to actually want to do the things he's commanded. Another level here would be emotionalism. We don't do this in our culture, but. <laughs> emotionalism. Emotionalism would be, I'm going to bypass the gospel, I'm going to bypass the mind, and I'm going to just go straight for the affections, okay? Typically, this would work out with, you know, wanting more and more emotional experiences that keep giving you that little tick of something to keep going. This would be the camp high, the conference high, the concert high, right? You're always looking for something more to get you. This is uh, the overall emphasis, the overemphasis on the worship experience, You know, there can be a thing where you have the right aesthetics, don't worry, it's not in here, Um, the right aesthetics, the right emotional appeal to where for a little bit you've got something that makes you excited. It won't last though, guys, right? I mean, that doesn't last. It gives you a short-term burst, but it has no real fuel because it has no real gospel, right? There's no real gospel fuel. We weren't meant to really follow Christ just based on emotions. Um, emotions are great things, though, guys. I believe strongly in emotions. <laughs> I'm not against emotions. Emotions are a very important part of our sanctification, right? Um, you know, but the thing is, in our culture, you know, where you hear kind of like, follow your heart, you know, you hear that all the time. You just need to follow your heart. And for me, I'm like, what they mean, really, is they mean follow your emotions. For me, I'm like, which ones? <laughs> you know, like, I'm a very emotional creature. I mean, I look like it, but, like, I would have a different life plan every five minutes if I follow my heart, you know, it'd be totally chaotic. Maybe that explains some things, right? It's, 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 you know, the emotions are great. They're a great thing. We just can't allow them to drive. My nine-year-old daughter's great. We don't let her drive, okay? You don't let your emotions drive. You start by, you meditate on the gospel word. You have your mind renewed by meditating on the gospel word. You have affections through the Holy Spirit. He causes our affections. He causes joy to well up. Our, and then our wills are freed to want to do the things that Christ has commanded it, it, we can't let the emotions drive. They're not old enough. <laughs> Another one would be intellectualism, okay? See, all these are going to convict somebody different. You know? Um, we could be prone to that. Intellectualism. There's a lot of people who love theology here. I love theology here. Um, that would be something that could be uh, an issue with us. What is intellectualism? It's terminating at the mind just stops here, right? There's no change in the affections of the heart for Christ, and there's certainly no freeing of the will to actually do the things that he's commanded us to do. We have hearts full of great truth, but no effect on our hearts or on our lives before people. This is what James talked about, right? The hearers and not the doers. What is that? It's intellectualism. And so you might ask yourself, well, you know what? I've been really hard here, but I just am not feeling the joy in Christ that would set these things loose. One of the things I'd say is make sure you're meditating on the gospel word, right? Make sure that you're meditating on scripture, and make sure you're meditating on who God is, who he is in Christ, what he's done in Christ, what he's going to do in the future through Christ. Make sure you're meditating on those very things. Those are the things that are going to set you free. Um, And I'd also say, take some time, okay? You know, you see these devotionals, five-minute devotional for men. I don't know that this happens in five minutes. I, I don't know. Maybe you But I don't have a microwave-type heart. I can't just put in five minutes and I'm roaring hot for Jesus, right? Not going to happen, right? Not going to happen. So take some time. Let it simmer. Did you let it simmer? Did you soak? Did you chew on it? You know, did you take the Word of God and did you chew on it and think about it and dwell on it and did you roll it over on your tongue and then did you swallow it and did the digestive juices start to break it down so that eventually like your hunger you're feeling full did you do that that's what you need to do okay that's super important okay so just in review it's it's meditating on the gospel word having our minds renewed what happens from there is the holy spirit gives us affections for christ And then our wills are free to do actually do the things that um, that he wants us to do. You know those passages that um, you know those passages like uh, you know First John he says my command his commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God to keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Weird verse. (laughs) right? Because a lot of times you look at the commands, you think they are burdensome. How does that happen? It happens through this process of joy in Christ and having your will actually transformed. Isn't that exciting that he does that? Because I know that there's certain areas in your life where you think like, okay, this command of the Lord, whether it's, whether it's something like uh, bitterness or anger or lust or maybe, maybe it's same-sex attraction or maybe it's something with your hold on your money or something like that, where you think I can't battle this temptation the rest of my life. The good news of the gospel is that he transforms hearts and wills. You know, you can be a different person. God is gradually renewing us from the inside out, freeing us to do the things he wants to do. Okay, so remember where we were. God, um, Paul had asked, how did you get the Holy Spirit? And the answer was, by hearing with faith. Now he asks another question. He says, how did you get the Holy Spirit working supernaturally among you? He's talking about the church when he says among you. Look at verse 5. How did, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you, Do so by the works of law or by hearing with faith. Here we see that the Holy Spirit not only gives us fruit, like in that diagram, he gives us gifts, okay? And those new believers were formed into churches, and the Holy Spirit started to operate in them and give them all kinds of new spiritual gifts, things that they didn't know that they had. And he created a community among them where non-Christians can come in and they could see glimpses of the kingdom, okay? These spiritual gifts were emerging, get this, among ordinary Galatian believers, Brand new ones. Gifts were being shown. If you want to see a list of those, you can look in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12. But I compiled them. I'll read them to you. Gifts like mercy. Gifts like service. Gifts like prophecy. Gifts like giving. Gifts like tongues. Exhortation. Leadership. Miracles. Teaching. Healing. Knowledge. Faith. Discernment. And wisdom. Wisdom. Okay? Gifts like that emerging amongst normal, everyday believers. And, um, and the same things happen with us. You know, as we are focused on hearing with faith, we're hearing the gospel, we're believing the gospel, you see gifts coming out. And that's one of the f- cool things about planting a church. You guys know this is new. I've been doing this for about two years. And uh, it's a new church. And the cool thing about a new church is, is that you need everybody to help. OK, like that's not the kind of thing like with an established church, you can start coming, be a member, not really do anything. Um, it turns out like everybody's got to row the boat or it sinks. OK, and so the cool thing about that is, is that you see people that, with gifts that you didn't even know would have those gifts. You know, people that like have an amazing gift of administration or amazing gift of, you know, teaching or service or they're just super gifted people. And you never knew because you were in a bigger church and they weren't really needed. And there were people that had their gifts more honed and they were more obvious. So they kind of got, took care of it and everybody else set back. And then you go like, okay, we're starting a new church. Who has gifts? And I don't know. We'll find out, right? We'll find out. And the cool thing is seeing them emerge. The Holy Spirit, guys, is supernaturally working among us when we gather for worship. And that's why, guys... A podcast is no substitute for Sunday morning. This is a supernatural gathering where God's people bring all their gifts to bear. And you might think, well, right now it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like it right now, but it'll seem like it for the last hour that we're here. seem like it for the first two hours we were here. Like, come and be a part of it. It's cool how many things happen here. This isn't just a place to hear a message and leave. People are using their gifts here. God is uniquely present to bless us when we gather for the word and sacraments. That's something God promises. It says in verse 5, he supplies the spirit and works miracles among you. And I'll tell you guys, one of the most surprising miracles or works that we've seen uh, here is in the area of healing. And you guys might not know much about us doing this because we're not flashy about it. Nobody comes in with really weird hair, you know, and, and you know, knocks people down or anything like that. No. What I've seen over the last two years is we've seen surprising amounts of healing Um, and the way we do it is just like James 5. So if anyone's sick among you, let him ask the elders, and he will anoint them with oil and pray over them. So we do something real simple. If anybody has something they need to be healed of or prayer requests in general, let us know. We'll gather a group of leaders together with elders, and we'll anoint them with oil, and that's not freaky either. Chad usually puts like a little teeny bit of oil on your wrist. You can decline if you want. It still works good, but the oil is just a symbol of God's presence. It doesn't mean anything uh, more than that. It's not magic oil or anything like that. We will not pour it over your head, so like Aaron or whoever, you know, we're not going to do that, um, but, and then we just pray. We just pray, believing that God can and does heal people. We don't know if he'll heal that person at that time. That's totally up to God, okay, Totally up to God. That's not something we can manipulate. But we've seen some amazing answers to prayer. There was a guy, who's was a client of mine. I'm a veterinarian, by the way. And so this client of mine that came here, and that's probably why I'm so interested in the healing part, but he, um, he came and he had brain cancer. And uh, the doctors had told him that this was it. You know, they were treating him, but the, and he got healed. Um, we have had people with back injuries that were healed, and they were healed even sometimes at the moment. Like, this one lady was funny, another client of mine. She came, and she was like... Um, Two weeks later, after we pray for her back, she goes, oh, my boyfriend said I should probably come tell you that I got healed at the moment you prayed. And I'm like, yeah, that would be really cool to tell us. Like, you know, she's like, I felt he and I was better. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't withhold stuff like that. That's like, super important, especially for a skeptical person like me. Like, I want the data. You know? um, we've had people with masses in their chests that went away. We have had uh, one guy that was diagnosed with a really bad muscle condition. And then he went to his doctor, and he didn't have it. One with a heart condition. I mean, I'm not. I don't want to make it sound like like every single person's getting healed because they're not. People get sick and they die among us. That's part of being between the kingdom coming in as it's coming in now and when it fully comes. We're in the time in between. You know, even with Paul, you know, I it left somebody you know sick and, and things like that. Um, and uh, obviously his giftings were were way stronger. But uh, Paul says in verse five here. Um, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And, you know, you can imagine these, these Galatians saying, like, no, it wasn't because we kept the law. It wasn't like we kept the law good enough, and then he started actually, like, causing all these spiritual gifts to happen among us and blessing us as a gathering. He did it with hearing with faith. And it's the same with us. And I just want to caution you with the gifts. One thing that I think is really important is to say there's two errors. One is not seeking the gifts at all, Okay. Um, But the other error is centering on the gifts and demanding them, okay? We don't center on them and demand them. Um, The Holy Spirit is God, okay? One of these things you see with kind of hyper-Pentecostal-type environments is talk about God as a force, and, you know, we command him to do these things. Holy Spirit is God, okay? Holy Spirit is sovereign. Holy Spirit does what he wants when he wants, okay? But we're called to ask, right? We're called to ask and seek. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it says that he distributes to each one he, it, gifts as he wills. Okay? But, it's, but it's our job to ask and, um, and, and trust him to know better. In 1 Corinthians 14, 1, he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So we don't want to make the gifts the center. The center is Christ, the center is hearing with faith. The environment in which the gifts are activated is an environment of hearing with faith. It's not where you're focused on gifts, it's where you're focused on Christ. And so Paul's saying to him, like, you know, look at you guys. These guys come to town. They make you feel like you're not real Christians, you know, because you're not keeping all these laws. And he says to them, look at you guys. God inhabits you, and I've been to your gatherings. God's clearly at work in all the people in the church with their gifts and stuff like that. Why are you so insecure? You don't need to listen to these people. You're already God's people. And then he says something really kind of shocking in verse 6. He says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness." knowing then that it is those that are of faith that are sons and daughters of Abraham. He's saying, you're as much one of God's people as Abraham was. That's the way in. And you know he's kind of like, take that, you know, <laughs> false teachers, right? He says that that's always been the way. It's always been the way to be included into God's people, of hearing with faith, not works of the law. That's the way Abraham himself was accepted, as you see here. And Paul makes it clear why. Look at verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by works of the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Our law-keeping, guys, can never save us because it, it can never be kept completely. You don't ever keep it completely. Um, and he says in verse 11, this should be evident. <laughs> this is obvious. Um, when we were doing campus evangelism a couple years ago, there was this Romanian guy, and one of the things I'd ask him is like, you know, if they had any spiritual beliefs, and kind of kind of open our conversation like that. And then I said, how, how can a person be made right before God? And you know he said? You need to keep the ten rules. And I was like, what? And he says, the ten rules. And I was like, the ten rules? Oh, the ten commandments, you know? So there's ten rules. You just keep the ten rules, was his answer. And you know what I said to him? I go, how are you doing at that? And he, and he had a little smile, a little smirk, and he said, nobody's perfect. Okay? It doesn't work that way. That's what this passage says. It's all or nothing. You do the law 100% complete or you take Christ 100% complete. There's no mix and match. Okay? There's no the burden of your sin like Jesus picks it up and you pick up the other end. Like, okay, you can have the heavy end, but I'll take the, no, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. He takes it, or you take it. And no one can keep the law completely. And that's why we can't trust in it. And he says that those who are trying to earn their salvation, people that say stuff like, you know, uh, how how are you right before God? I'm just trying to be a good person. I'm just trying to be the best I can. That's works of the law, right? And he's saying here, he's saying that anyone who is relying on that is under a curse, it says. Do you see that? They're under a curse. Cursed is everyone... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the law. They're under a curse. And I just say to you guys, do you feel cursed? If you came here and you don't know Christ, do you feel cursed? You are. We all were. We all were under a curse because of our sin. Because we had not kept the law. And yet, verse 10, he says, or verse 13, But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that, Christ would, uh, so that in Christ the blessings of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit by faith. And I just want to end on talking about the cross. And here we have two aspects of the cross. I see a physical aspect here and I see a spiritual aspect. I see the physical aspect because he says hung on a tree. Like how physical, how you can, you can feel the texture of a tree, right? And then you have here also that as he was hanging on the tree that he was cursed. You get the physical and the spiritual. First, the physical. Jesus hung on a tree. This points to the physical sufferings of Christ. Somebody took a tree and cut it down and made beams and fashioned a cross, and that was the wooden structure on which Jesus' ankles and wrists were nailed to. You know, it's a physical thing. It's, it, he talks about hung on a tree. In the Old Testament, it said that anyone who hung on a tree was cursed by God. And so God used, the, you know, allowed in his providence this method of execution for Jesus to show that he was cursed by God. But I just want to review for you what crucifixion is. The people that uh, would have heard it in the first century would have seen it all the time. It was as common as billboards. But uh, what would have happened is a soldier would have grasped Jesus' wrist. Jesus would have offered that wrist, by the way. Uh, not run from him, not pulling it back. He put his wrist out for you. And he would have felt the wrist. They weren't crucified through the hand. They're crucified through the wrist. He would have felt that you got little square bones there, your carpal bones. He would have felt for a little depression right there. He would have taken the nail, would have pounded that right through there, would have separated his little carpal bones that are in his wrist, and it would have like played his median nerve like a fiddle as he was crucified there. Then quickly he would take the other arm and put it over here and do the same thing, but he'd leave room in the arms to make sure that he could writhe and move on the cross. It was important for his ability to breathe. The Romans didn't want to kill you right away. They wanted you to take as long as possible. So they wanted to make a way for you to actually breathe. And then what would have happened now that he's affixed to the horizontal beam is is they would have attached it to the vertical beam and um, put it in place. And then they would have taken his feet. They put his um, right foot over his left foot on the cross. And they would have driven this right through um, the uh, heel of both of his feet. And so there he was um, hanging on the cross through the arches of his feet and through his uh, wrists. They would have left his knees with some flexion ability too. That was also to be able to breathe. Um, every time Jesus took a breath, he had to push himself up on the nail because that's the only way that you would be able to expand your chest to get air in. So he'd have to push himself you can imagine up on the nail, putting all the pressure on the, on the ankles on, of his feet and having his plantar and peroneal nerves, you know, being ground into that nail so he could breathe. And then when he couldn't take the searing pain in his feet, what he'd do is he'd drop down and let all the weight be on his wrists, shooting pain up the fingers. You guys have hit a nerve before on the corner of your arm or something like that. Imagine a, a nail piercing it, and he'd have piercing pain up his fingers and, and down his arms, and he'd hold his breath until he couldn't hold his breath any longer, and then he'd repeat the thing by pushing himself up so he could breathe. He did that all day, all afternoon, you know, up and then down and up and down over and over again until he died. The pain, guys, was inescapable. The the word excruciating actually comes from the Latin word cross, crux, ex means from, it means from the cross. It was excruciating pain. It was something where he writhed, And just trying to adjust himself constantly to be able to breathe and have the least pain possible. And it's important, guys, amidst all this talk, though, of his physical sufferings, that we don't miss what was under the surface. what's under the surface is what he says here. Jesus was cursed. He was cursed for us then. This isn't just the bad Romans and all these people. This is God cursing Jesus. Why was he cursed? It says that he took our curse upon him. Do you guys see it there? He says... He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This points to the deeper sufferings, the inner sufferings, the inner torture of this thing. I think that, you know, perhaps one of the reasons why God used crucifixion is so that's something we can understand more. We can't understand the inner suffering and turmoil, so it helps us. It helps us get there to to see the pain. Um, But Jesus was actually being cursed by God. We know that because he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And guys, it's a valid question because Jesus was perfect. Didn't deserve to be in this situation at all. He lived the law perfectly his whole life. Should have been the joy of every nation and the delight of his father's heart and have everything go well for him. He earned it, right? But here he is forsaken and cursed on the cross. He was, and why was he cursed? He was cursed because your curse got taken off of you and put on him. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's something the Father ordained to do before the foundation of the world to save you. That's something that Jesus volunteered for in the book of Hebrews. It says that as he came into the world, he said, um, Sacrifices and whole offerings you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. He said, give me the body, I'm ready. And he came there to take the curse away from you. And by his perfect obedience and death, it was destroyed. It says in verse 13, that he redeemed us from the curse of the cross. And I just want to say to you guys in this environment that there's no sin in this room that's stronger than the cross. Because I think you could have come in here and thought that, oh, maybe the cross is enough for other people. But now that you've heard what it is, you should say that there's no sin in this room that's stronger than the cross. There's nobody for which they can say, you missed a spot of my sin right? This is enough for everybody here in this room. It's enough for millions and millions of people um, more than they're in this room. And the other thing we can say about the cross is there's no goodness in this room that can be supplemented to it. I think sometimes we think that, you know, like, oh yeah, I got Jesus, but you know what? I've been room really good since. And I think I've got a little record that I can maybe staple to the bottom of the cross just as a little extra so that the Father will go like, oh yeah, and I had this too. We never would, right? You never would right now. You know why? Because the spell's been broken. Remember I talked about the spell, the spell of um, self-sufficient religion? It's been broken when you see the cross. Guys, that's the solution. Seeing Christ publicly portrayed as crucified is what breaks the spell of self-sufficient religion. And that's what we need to be doing over and over and over again is seeing the cross. And I want to just say one quick word. If any of you have come in here with the curse of sin upon you, and you hear that good news and want it, you can have it today. This isn't something you have to work yourself into or take a class or anything like that. This is something you receive today. So today, while we're taking communion, it's for people that are trusting in Christ only. If you're not trusting in Christ, don't take it. But if this is the day when you're saying, I'm trusting in him, you can take it. In your seat, just saying, Lord, I want Christ. I want him to remove all of my sin. I want to be yours. And he will make you every bit a Christian and every bit as acceptable before God as the Apostle Paul or Moses or Abraham or any of those guys. In a moment. Justification. It's great news. Surrender your sin and cling to him. So Christ is publicly portrayed as crucified today. Um, In the word and also in the Lord's Supper. So in a moment here, during these next few songs, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And in this, too, we proclaim um, Christ crucified, right? And we remember. Remember, guys, as you take that bread, remember the curse and the tree. Remember both aspects of the cross. As you take that bread and you crush it with your teeth, remember that the sun was crushed for you to make you right with God. Your sin, as that thing dissolves in your mouth, that your sin is no more. The bread symbolizes his broken body. The cup symbolizes his blood which washes away all sin. So we remember and we also receive. This is a time to receive Christ's presence, right? This is a time through the Holy Spirit to be filled with the Spirit as we take the bread and the cup. Let's pray. Father, we are immensely thankful, Lord. Beyond all things, we are thankful for the way you so thoroughly dealt with our sin. Lord, help us to not be foolish or bewitched in thinking that anything we do adds to that or anything we don't do makes that ineffective. Lord, it is all your son. Wash me clean or I die. It's all your son. And Lord, we pray too as we um, meditate on that, Lord, that you would give us joy in our hearts, and freedom to our wills, so that we want to serve you. We want to serve our neighbor. We want to be like Christ, Lord, and that that would all be by the power of your Spirit. Lord, make us new people. We want to be the new people your Son has purchased. Do that for us, we pray. We pray, too, for our gathering for the rest of our time here as we, as we close and we're done, Lord, that there's this time of fellowship where we can pray for each other and encourage each other and do all these things, Lord. We pray that you bless that time. As Paul talked about the, the spirit, you give the spirit among us and do works in our midst, Lord. We pray for that. We pray, Lord, that nobody would leave this room, Lord, without knowing they've met with the living God and knowing that they are in secure relationship with you pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.